Next song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains the world. Exciting episode today, Dave. Absolutely. Uh, You know how easily excited I am when it comes to episode topics. Almost as easily excited as you. (laughs) And this week we are doing Vaudeville, which this episode is going to be a little different uh, because Vaudeville is so old. Instead of how old is it? The mid to late eighteen uh, hundreds is when it really started to pick up steam, especially post world uh, World War, uh, post Civil War. It really started to, as the country became more urbanized, it started to pick up steam, as it were. Um, but it, we are going to be talking about how vaudeville influenced and explains wrestling more so than the other way around. I mean, we will be getting into a little bit of like how they diverged, but vaudeville is probably the most influential artistic medium in American history. Like it's influenced so many things. And part of that is the, the style of entertainment that people started to perceive Americans to like and people in general but uh, vaudeville has like a very, some very specific American connotations, despite the fact that it's a French term that the promote one of the original promoters uh, took. Um, and the other half is that the kind of people that did well in vaudeville either became very influential long term if they didn't make it out of vaudeville, or if they made it out of vaudeville, like your Bob Hope, they became like top stars. In terms of being like a, a, a of like a wrestler's wrestler, but of entertainers, like they were considered to be the some of the best entertainers in Hollywood and the larger entertainment sphere. Oh yeah, certainly. I mean, television and talking movies, really, especially comedy movies, might never have taken off and and been things like been pillars of the entertainment industry the way they are if not for the vaudeville performers. I mean. There, there was just a whole army of folks who'd literally been training their whole lives. And when first the radio came about and then, you know, talking pictures and oh, how old am I talking pictures, uh, talking pictures and television, like they, they were there to occupy those spots and to really hit, help those mediums take off. And I think you see that with last week's topic, and that's why we picked it. I mean, there's a couple of different reasons. It's Bobby fucking Heenan. But one of the reasons we picked Bobby Heenan is because he was almost, in the way that the territory era is uh, like a, an analog for the vaudeville era, I feel like he came out of that vaudevillian style of wrestling and became one of the greatest all-around performers because of just the nature of the business honed his skills in such a way that he was just an entertaining motherfucker. Like, he just was good at entertaining people. Absolutely. He had a core act that was really well honed over the years. But in addition to that core act, he had all these other individual skills. And uh, that was definitely something, we'll get into it later, that, you know, vaudeville performers uh, definitely cultivated as well, both that kind of core act, but also a broad array of skills that, you know, could uh, could make you money on different days of the week. Yeah, and I think it's important to note, um, in the same way that we think of, like, Abbott and Costello and all these other vaudeville acts, we think about Bobby Heenan, it's just weird because it's 20 years, like, we're in a much more a modern, accelerated culture, but, like... They are the cornerstones of what we perceive to be entertainment. And when we think about Bobby Heenan, it's the same exact thing. We perceive him as the embodiment of the, like, 
not the chicken shit the the con man heel the 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 guy trying to get over on you as like a used car salesman like he is the quintessential version of that heel and that heel for reasons we've talked about a bunch over the last month um is one of the most important kinds of characters you can have in wrestling yeah absolutely because someone's got to actually hold the heat like we've said over and over again going back to Cornette, that like as much as someone can be uh, you know, a, a bad heel wrestler who does mean things. As long as someone is like a kick-ass athlete on at least some level, it's pretty hard to hate them if you see them over and over again and you start to appreciate what they're good at. But as we keep coming back to that kind of manager or that non-wrestler, they can really effectively hold down that villain spot for much longer because they don't have the redemptive quality of, of being an awesome wrestler. Bobby Heenan knew both what his act was in a, on a, like an existential level. Like it was, it was a, almost like molecular, the level at which he understood the Bobby the Brain Heenan character. And he also could just do anything he knew how to he learned how to take a bump he learned how to and and what you realize when you watch i, I watched a pbs documentary and i've been reading up a little bit on vaudeville um the pbs documentary is great it's about two hours it's an american masters you can find it on one of the streaming sites that's not one of the streaming sites if that makes sense um what you learn about vaudeville is how much it influenced everything because like vaudeville is so popular it's almost hard for us to fathom now like it was the way we talk about how other countries feel about soccer is kind of how americans felt about vaudeville and there's two reasons for this really one is that it's really the first form of collected shared entertainment experience for americans in a meaningful way because it was happening during such a formative time where like uh, in the in the documentary they mentioned about right when uh, the origins of what became vaudeville started i think it was 8 out of every 10 people lived in the city uh, lived sorry in the country and by the time vaudeville really started to hit uh in the the post civil war era you were looking at somewhere between 45 and 50% of the people in the country were now living in the city so they were, there were places where people were congregating and what was happening is those places were having these big theaters, right? And we'll get into some... We're not going to get really in-depth in vaudeville because we're going to do a couple of episodes, not in a row, but we're going to come back to vaudeville a lot. The way vaudeville worked very briefly was you had big time, medium time, and small time. And you would basically run the same acts through all of the same places. But what would happen is you'd have places in Peoria which is does it play in Peoria is a famous phrase having to do with uh, that comes from vaudeville as many, 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 many phrases do. Um, and basically what it said was, can this work in Harlem in the same way it works in Peoria? And that was kind of like what people started to understand as our perception of entertainment, like our perception of what's entertaining on some level is from vaudeville. Yeah, certainly. I mean, as, as you're alluding to, I mean, vaudeville basically was just shorthand for popular entertainment for like a half century, because you had, as you said, like the conglomeration of all these people from the country coming together. You know, you had been relying prior to that on the best storyteller in your family. Uh, and then suddenly when you were in this massive pool of people, you realized like, hey, the world is a lot bigger uh, than just my immediate family. 
And some of these people are literally hundreds of times better than the, you know, the best storyteller that I personally know. Yeah, it is really, like you said, it is a kind of catch-all for um, all non-risque entertainment, basically. Like, vaudeville was different than burlesque. Burlesque is obviously, but the structures were fairly similar. So you had these these acts, and they weren't necessarily connected. Um, sometimes people appeared in multiple acts. But instead of, let's say, breaking out with a dramatic reading of something, they would have strippers and burlesque dancers. Like, that was the difference. But vaudeville was very specifically, like, intentionally, like, almost the blockbuster movies of its day. But at the same time, you had these people that worked these routines, and it became this thing that you understood as, like... When we talk, we talk about nostalgia a decent amount on the show, and we talk about like the idea that looking back, maybe things weren't as cool as we thought they were. Like vaudeville seems like a time where like that was actually an interesting and engaging time to be in an entertainment capacity. Like it really seems like they were on the cusp of something because of that urbanization of America. Like they were really touching the like the pulse of America in a way that I feel like wrestling kind of did in the early days of television when suburbanization was happening and you had these people watching stuff on TV. And this is something we talked about during the, the, the video that'll be coming out or may has already come out. It's going to be a really long video and I'm working very hard on it, but it's taking a while. Uh, we talked about, um, or Dave, I should say Dave talked about the idea of the, the importance of wrestling in early television was a, uh, basically to stand in for sports for a lot of places. Yeah, certainly. I mean, broadcasting live sports games was pretty difficult by the standards of the time because, you know, there, there like weren't satellite systems in the way we would think of them by, by the 70s. You know what I mean? Um, there were nationally televised soccer games in the UK and stuff, but it, it didn't really work that well in the US because the country was so big but sports and entertainment were both still so regionalized. So just because you had a game on TV, unless it was like Notre Dame or something, who are still to this day, in spite of their recent laziness, is uh, one of the biggest draws in the history of television. Unless you had like a Notre Dame, you really had to focus on creating something of local interest. And wrestling was a sporting event of local interest that you could, you know, display just in your local television studio, like you could literally be doing it 25 feet away from where you had shot the evening news early. Yeah. And you also had um, like the Dumont network, right? The Dumont network. I always wanted. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That was the big, that was the big national show out of Chicago that made like Vern Gagne was a huge star on the Dumont network. We've talked about that before. Television. A lot of it is readily influenced by wrestling. Like to me in a lot of ways, Although it's changed a lot, and, and we'll get into reasons why wrestling has stayed a little bit longer. Not longer, because vaudeville still exists, but it's completely pulled out of its original context. The reason that wrestling did so well is it was able to adapt in ways that vaudeville just, for all its greatness, wasn't. And I, I think like what you have is this idea of the balance between making something for everybody, right? And making something for every single person to like the exact same way. There's kind of, or not the exact same way. That's not the right way to describe what happened with vaudeville. But people wanted to be 
never changed their acts. It never happened. They would just, they would learn new skills and the people that broke out and became big stars learned new skills, but you had these like low, lower level acts who never changed. They just never differentiated what they were doing. And part of that was the, is this going to play in Peoria? And I think you watch now and I feel like wrestling has some trouble with that of like keeping a cohesive story, right? But also giving you something for everybody. Like I think SmackDown does a good job of it. Uh, You would have to tell me if you think like MLW does a good job of it. But I think there's this difficulty that wrestling has with wanting to have matches that fit everybody's style because not everybody likes wrestling the same way and making it so that like every one of those individual things has to be interesting enough generically that people will keep watching. Yeah, you know, I think there was a period of time in like the 70s and into the kind of national expansion era in the early 80s where the wrestling business was at a size where it could, and and like I said, both a size in terms of the general size of the business and also the size of each individual promotion, that there was this environment where people could get really, really good at refining the act. And then the WWE or the WWF kind of became the big room, you know, became the big place to go. But the problem was that they brought so many acts to the big room, to the top circuit that the, the bottom circuits got uh, diminished or depleted and, or, and the middle circuits as well. You know what I mean? It, 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 what people, people always decry or people frequently decry that there's only kind of one quote unquote, well, I don't want to say major league because now there really is major league wrestling. Uh, people often decry that, that, that there's only one kind of top place and everybody else is way below them. But the fact of the matter is, is that like, it's, it's not that the top of the business isn't diverse enough. It's that like, the base of the pyramid isn't wide enough. You know what I mean? And I think that, I think as you say that as, as vaudeville went downhill, the diversity is, is what they lost because I know one of the things that was done, uh, you know, as, as radio and, uh, and movies became bigger is that they would start bringing in celebrity acts. So as, instead of having as many performers on the card, because vaudeville cards were structured very much like wrestling, you would go and there would be like eight or nine or 12 different things on the on the card and they would go in a certain order. But over time, there were fewer and fewer of the like true performers because their acts had gotten tired and they started bringing in like uh, professional athletes in the off season or like retired politicians and uh, just like general people whose names had been in the newspaper to tell their life story. And that was sort of in a sense, the genre saying that they were like, yeah, yeah, we know that we used to do this really good thing. And like, uh, yeah, we, we know all that's burned out, but uh, we don't really know where to take it from here. And, and we know you like these people. So, so here you go. And I think today's wrestling sometimes feels like that. It's funny you mentioned that because a place that came after the U.S. started to lose interest in vaudeville was Australia. <laughs> it was like one of the major places a lot of vaudevillians, 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 not vaudevillians. Fuck you. <laughs> not you, but uh, Simon Gotch and Aiden English. Fuck you guys because this episode would have been a lot easier before that. <laughs> I don't... I like the the um, Super Showdown. Like, I actually think that's a cool idea to, like, do... Because sh- it's really hard to do a traditional pay-per-view in Australia, but it can't... It not, it's not a situation where they absolutely can, under no circumstances, do it, or should do it, like in Saudi Arabia. Like, they should not be having a second show in Saudi Arabia. 
But like, I have no problem with it. But the, my problem is, and it's the same thing with what happened with vaudeville. It's, it's going to be the same thing over and over again. It's going to be a bunch of people going to a foreign country. Uh, in this case, well, one place where it's just like slightly more racist than it is here. And they talk funnier. Like, that's it. Like, that is all Australia has that's different from what we're going to see. We're like, at least with Saudi Arabia, or let's say the Middle East in general, there's like different cultural things that are like pervasive. Let's say if they went to like a less problematic place in the Middle East, like, um, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, so I get why they... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they go to Israel, don't they? they, uh, they, I, said they less, the I said they a did. less problematic place. Well, no, well, well, depending on that's a matter of perspective, I guess. I, I try to, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, well, that's my whole point, is, like, there's... If they're going to go to places where, like, it there's actual PR issues... Not PR issues, it's the wrong way to put it. Actual humanitarian issues behind why it's problematic that they're going there... I don't want to see it. If you're going to do it and you're going to insist on doing it, that's fine. What my real problem is to get it back to back on track before we got all political is that uh, nothing is going to happen at these shows. People know that these shows don't have any value in the same way that like when you saw an old, uh, an old act come out, you knew you weren't probably not going to get anything new. You were going to get the same old shit nothing of any importance was going to happen you weren't going to like have your life changed it was just going to be a good show and this is something i i was i've, I've been editing the, the the video um your point there you make a point in there about how television wrestling puts on a good show now but they don't build characters not that vaudeville did that but like the medium requires that now and they don't do it in the same way that like vaudeville didn't change its act that was part of the problem but like they never even had that great of acts to begin with anymore, I think is also part of the problem. is like you have guys that are in the last vestiges of the territorial era when the, everything was so big and everything was so monoculture. And now there's this transition that they haven't figured out. And I, I feel like vaudeville never quite figured that out either. Because like we mentioned uh, film uh, taking the lunch money of vaudeville, but what really murdered it was radio. Radio completely killed it because you could just put the axe on for free on the radio and that was it. They never had to do the axe. Well, they had to do the axe again, but like you're not seeing someone doing the physical performing, so you can have anybody do it. You know what I'm saying? Like there was, there's a real fear for me, not so much uh, because what wrestling does well is switch mediums and embrace new technology, but like new economic models, I'm less sure of. Nick, are you saying that those people who are at the recordings of A Prairie Home Companion aren't having much more fun than I am listening to it on the radio? Because if not, I'm really scared for them. <laughs> That's mean, but fuck that guy. So, uh, <laughs> Garrison Keeler, what type of name is that? Uh, we're so political today. Um, <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> um, no, but I, I think with... With this idea of vaudeville as these great performers, I think what failed them was the system. I think the system of vaudeville was the problem, and 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 this is something we this is this is something we maybe talk about more than anything else. The McMahon model of wrestling—it's scary to me what happens after the McMahons leave if they do. 
like I think the the system that was in place for vaudeville kind of ran its course naturally when a new technology came in. I don't know what happens when like the McMahon brand isn't the right word. The McMahon business model of them being the movers and shakers of the entire industry. Like what happens when that gets removed? Does that ever get removed? Like how many generations of McMahons are there going to be that are good at running a wrestling company? Yeah, definitely. And you know, back in the day, like in the, in the eighties and the, uh, Gorilla Monsoon used to refer to Vince McMahon backstage as Caesar because he was like, you know, the emperor. He, he fancied himself as such. And I think that the Roman Empire really is a great analogy for the McMahons because, I mean, as the Roman Empire spread out from Italy, what did they do? They, you know, they, they killed many, many people. They, they brought people to the knee and, and made sure that they watered down their culture just enough to be Roman. And then they built fortresses and walls and all sorts of infrastructure to make sure that these people, number one, were scared of them, and number two, knew how important they were to their survival. And they, you know, they really ruled, you know, both through through military and economic might in in a way where you know the common people shouldered the burden. But at the same time, like, what was the worst thing that happened to any of the people who were conquered by Rome when Rome went away? Right. And then you have almost a thousand years of dark ages because of how important in terms of economics and military and education and in everything Rome was. And I think in the McMahon, I think Rome's a great analogy for the McMahons. Like they've conquered the whole thing and they've like had their their reign, their era. And like you said, when it ends, it, it's kind of scary to think of it. Are we going to, I think people just assume sometimes like things are going to be more diverse and more progressive and better, but it's like, we really could slip into a wrestling dark age. Cause it's like, you know, right now there's a lot of people on kind of second and third tier TV shows out on the Indies who are making, you know, a quarter million dollars a year. But it's like, if there isn't the WWE at the top doing super well and paying people what they're paying now, like what happens to the rest of the salary structure business-wide and for how many people does it become viable anymore? Because once again, that's what happened to vaudeville. A lot of those people who were super successful and toured for 20, 30, 40 years, like a lot of those people died in obscurity, penniless. And, and it, like I said, I, I'm nervous for the wrestling industry sometimes when I think of the fall of the McMahon empire. And if you look at, the vaudeville in terms of the power that promoters had over it, because we briefly got into the the way that the shows were structured, but one of the ways in which the shows were structured uh, in terms of the big time, the medium time and the small time is the big time was run by a, a couple of different promoters, most of whom had very strict, like we mentioned earlier as well, um, decency rules, basically. And it really constrained the performers, right? Like, they couldn't do all of the stuff they wanted to do. I think when we think about the terms of like the ideas of like the sexual revolution and stuff like that, we have this perception that people didn't talk or think about sex or anything interesting beforehand. Right. Like, like one day people were just like, Oh, we can have sex now. And that's how the world works. And it was, yeah, I don't think, I don't think Dwight Eisenhower ever had sex. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Wasn't his, wasn't his wife named Mamie? <laughs> like, 
I don't know. I don't know. National highway system. I feel like <laughs> you, you feel know, like I it's feel compensating like it, for something with that. Yeah, right, right. Or I feel like you would have come up with a with a better way if he'd been if he'd had a clearer head. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and I think what when you look at like that and we're not going to we are two white guys from coastal cities. We are not going to get into like the horrors of like minstrel shows which are actually the pre the antebellum version of vaudeville i didn't want to get too involved and blackface which i mean persisted into the motion picture oh my god like but there are a lot of things that like were problematic about in in the terms we would use today problematic right but like even then we're just like there's in the documentary there's this really funny uh funny actually i think is it's fair enough to say is she's talking about like well when i was 18 and i was in i didn't really think of it as racist because i was i'd grown up with it but looking back, oh, my parents were definitely bigots. Like, I just thought that was hilarious. That's an aside. <laughs> that kind of stuff is stuff you see on a much less lesser scale, honestly. Except for WrestleMania 8. 8? No. WrestleMania 6. No, no, not WrestleMania. The WrestleMania with uh, uh, Piper. The Hot Scott. Oh, yes, yes, yes. The, the Bad News Island or Bad News Brown. Which Bad News Brown is bad enough to begin with, can we just say? Jesus yeah. Christ. <laughs> the ghetto blaster, was that? Was, that the was, ghetto blaster was his, like, kind of heavy-bodied Enziguri, yeah. <laughs> but I, no, like, it, not that I would ever uh, say anything bad to Bad News Island were he alive and in the same friggin' continent <laughs> as me. <laughs> when you no longer have WWE as the model around which the entire rest of the industry bases itself in the same way that like big time vaudeville was kind of the basis of you had to be wholesome and blah 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 it it prevents even the if the center of the universe is one way right even the extremes have to exist in relation to that does that make sense and i i worry that a lot of the progress we've seen in wrestling, weirdly, because a lot of the reason we didn't see progress is because of the McMahons, but a lot of the social progress you would see in wrestling would become less prevalent. It would, I think it would splinter more in as much as it existed, and I think a kind of reactionary wrestling might come up that makes me nervous, honestly. Like, when I think about, like, if the re- the wrestling world were to break down the way that Vaudeville did, where it still exists, right? Like, there are still people who do too many. They're just, now they're not people who make jokes and sing and do this. There are people who sing or make jokes or, or, or people have become much more specialized. And I, like, I, that's my fear is that you're going to have, like, this, pr- the progress that Vaudeville made where you had um, people of color, Burt Williams is somebody they talk a lot about, um, where they were able to transcend the confines of the shitty system to become important members of cultural members of society. But once like film started to happen and other things started to break it up, you saw that dissolve too, right? Like the new... The new version of wrestling might not include people of color 
because it's so focused on survival or survival, it might just go full. Like we don't care. We're trying to get a niche audience that's obsessed with us, not a broad audience that wants to keep us going because we represent something bigger than the thing we're doing. And we're good entertainment. Oh, well, I think you're speaking to, to definitely one of the big problems that that's not just a threat for the future. That's something that's like actually been going on. And, and, and that's this idea of, wrestling acts like it's growing but it's actually becoming more niche like there's i know that they use metrics like social media to show that they're more prevalent than ever but it's like yeah that's not an apples to apples comparison because there's literally no metrics or no real way to compare that to anything that came before once again that's like the comparing barry bonds to babe ruth thing or it's like you can't do it don't try i don't want to hear any arguments about it uh, but, <laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs> but but really, it's the thing, and this is something that a lot of the the kind of old timer folks, like once again, I'll think of like Jim Cornette. But one of the things that a lot of the kind of old timers said was that you know wrestling used to pride itself on being a, a show for anybody who might like wrestling, like anybody who might have a little seed inside of them where they might be inclined to like that kind of thing. Wrestling really prided itself on on giving people a show that achieve that. Whereas now I think the WWE has really, really defined what they do and they're cultivating an echo chamber of these super duper devoted fans who like retweet their links. And like, I accuse you of this sometimes sarcastically, of course, but who like fight for them, like who fight these proxy wars with quote unquote haters on social media and like while the haters and the blog boys. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So but yeah, I think part of the problem is that they're like cultivating this ultra devoted fan base who who believe that it's bigger than it is and they believe that they're part of something really really special and that's just really dangerous from like an an economic exploitation point of view because like that's how you really get in people's pockets like that's how cults work. You know what I mean? You you take a very small devoted group of people and you make them feel like they're part of a bigger movement that's like really all about important stuff. And and that's when, like I said, that's when you can really control someone in, in ways that are potentially dangerous. And so I do fear that yeah, that they're that they are cultivating this core group of I'll say it kind of to use more political language on this episode. There's this core group of like intentionally radicalized fans that they can mobilize to like fight proxy wars for them and to tell anybody who will listen that wrestling is bigger and better than ever. I mean, look what they've achieved with like Sports Illustrated and ESPN, who they've like thoroughly convinced to buy into everything that they've told them. You know what I mean? That, 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 that's, that, that's dangerous long-term. Like it works great now because of this model the McMahons have built, this totally McMahon confidence-based model. You know what I mean? This house of cards. And I'm not saying it's a bad house of cards. I'm just saying it's a house of cards. Um, but like you said, it's like when the other shoe falls, when <laughs> the demands aren't there anymore, you know what I mean? It, it, that's, it, it's, it's scary to look at even from a distance. Sorry. I just laughed because when the other shoe falls is a vaudeville bit. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Like it's, I wonder, cause this is a discussion I've had and this is a discussion that came up with like someone like, um, Dave Melter once and it was who is more famous or i'm sorry who is more iconic that was the important terminology rick flair or the rock and my argument was pretty unequivocally it's rick flair 
The Rock is absolutely more famous, right? But I don't know if it's... I don't know if he's important yet in the way that Ric Flair is. Like, Ric Flair was one of the people that Snoop Dogg cites as, like, one of the first people to, like, really make bling a thing. Like, he's... And, yeah, a lot of his look was culturally appropriated. But just come out and say it from, like, 1970s basketball players and shit like that. I just say most of the cool baby faces of the late 70s, early 80s were mining uh, black culture very aggressively, whether it was Superstar Grant, whether it was Dusty, whether it was Ric Flair, everybody did it. Or all the cool guys did it. All the cool guys stole their coolness from from actually cool black people. (laughs) But he was influential in a lot of ways. And I feel like vaudeville, even, and this is going to sound crazy, but like when you look at the totality of American culture, you're looking at vaudeville as like the origin story for almost all of it, right? Like almost all of the little things we see outside of like action movies were in essence. And and if you look at old comedies, they are essentially action movies. You look at Buster Keaton who started in vaudeville. They are very much vaudevillian style humor where it's sleight of hand, misdirection, um they they deal with perspective a little differently obviously because you're on a stage as opposed to being able to film and stuff like that but like the stories they're telling are these incredibly simple things that have permeated throughout history and reverberated throughout history and like i wonder if wrestling is going to be able to do that like ultimately i think that's the the question we talk about like vaudeville explains almost everything in our modern life in terms of entertainment in one way or another like either the people that help develop things because you look at a lot of choreography from the 1940s and 50s the post um depression era a lot of those were all vaudevillian vaudevillians um doing it like they permeated all of this stuff and you you like I, I know it sounds weird to be like looking and saying what happened to vaudeville could happen to wrestling, but like I increasingly worry that it might, I guess is what I, I think the thesis of this episode is like watching vaudeville, the vaudeville thing and reading up on vaudeville. You like understand how vaudeville thought it was the hottest shit in the world and that a bunch of things that were both good for the industry in terms of short term and made it so that they would never last once something changed. Like in this, in the case of vaudeville, it was C, uh, cinema and especially radio. And you're like, well, it, it like, and you mentioned the fall of the Roman Empire. It's like kind of that thing with wrestling is like, is wrestling on this a similar trajectory where in the 19 and 10 years from now, we're not even going to be, not that like Vince McMahon is going to die in the next 10 years, but like what happens when Fox decides to just buy WWE? And give them more money than they would ever know to do with. Are they going to sell? And if they don't sell, like, how does that affect them? Like, I think we are, without realizing it, in kind of like a watershed crisis time. Maybe watershed now, crisis down the road time in terms of the industry. As more money and stuff like that's getting involved. And I don't think we realize it. But, like, honestly, in the course of this episode, just talking about it, I kind of, I think differently about the health of the industry. Yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. And, like, you were talking earlier about the bot shows, like Super Showdown and uh, Greatest Royal Rumble and Crown Jewel. And, like, on one level, there's 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 this one narrative where people are like, holy crap, I can't believe these super wealthy, 
either, you know, municipalities who are trying to build, who are trying to build some hype or just private fans who are crazy rich, uh, like buying that show and bringing it in. It's like on one hand, there's this narrative that, that that's really great and get the money while you can, because why wouldn't you? But on the other hand, it speaks really to something that vaudeville did do down the line or that live kind of theatrical performances on the local level definitely started to do. Um, and, and that's really relying on the money marks, really finding those rich people who are really devoted to your genre and super serving them by once again, by getting every last penny out of them because later on in vaudeville and then post vaudeville, even if you look today at like the circuit of authors coming to speak at local bookstores and libraries, most of the time it's, it's wealthy community members who are, you know, opening their purse strings themselves specifically because they want to see certain acts brought to town. And that's great, but there are only so many people who are willing to do that. And your rank and file fans or like the rank and file people in your town might not be as intrigued to come and see that person as the money mark. So while you have the money mark on the hook in the moment and you can get their money for all they're worth, you know, it, it's, it's a very tenuous thing to start relying on that or start expecting on that or to start budgeting for the future, relying on that kind of revenue continuum. Especially if you were to like, let's say for a money mark, just in theory, this is just me tossing stuff out, right? Did you see uh, on the follow-up files last week, Nick, my reference for Money Mark? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, just... So, see, if you are a patron of the show, if you are a $2 or better patron at patreon.com slash hwetw, you just got the joke I made. And we're not going to explain it because those of you who aren't forking over your money don't forking deserve it. So get your ass over there if you want to know. Give us $2 per month. It's not that much at all. It's less than, like... Uh, almost anything that would satisfy your hunger at McDonald's, you know, go check it out. Go look at the follow-up files for the Bobby Heenan episode and learn a little more about the term money mark. And check out all the other follow-up files for this episode and, and all the other ones in the archive where we can give you all sorts of follow-up, different stuff you can watch, listen to, check out all sorts of jokes and references explained, as much fun as explaining jokes is, and, and just all sorts of further stuff, both to build your knowledge and build your funny bone. I can't believe I just said that. Go give us your money in spite of that terrible line. I can't believe I just said funny bone and I wasn't referring to uh, one of those little Debbie cakes with peanut butter. Ew, gross. Gross. I'm cutting this because they're disgusting. No, I'm not. Oh that. my God. If you're not down with every little one of little Debbie snack cakes, I've got two words for you. <laughs> Enjoy life. Like <laughs> I was going to say, it's probably something about, yeah, having good heart health. <laughs> um, so yeah, let's say in theory you have money, Mark. And let's say in theory that money Mark really wanted to see just in theory, a guy who had promised he had retired like six or seven years earlier. Right. And like was one of the few wrestling acts in the history of wrestling to actually retire and walk away. And like Nick, Nick, in, in, in your little scenario, I suppose Stevie, I'm uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, maybe what if this person, all right, just to, just to illustrate the point more fully, what if this person had previously been very public and vocal about expressing dissatisfaction that someone to whom he had given a huge retirement send off had come back to heartlessly make money? <laughs> I'd say in theory. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that deepen the pool? Yeah, here? it might be, it might be a little weird. It might, um, 
it might, you know, like affect the long-term viability of the industry. If you were to like take some of the greatest performers in the history of that industry and then sell them out to let's again, just people with a lot of money, promoters, those, those kind of people. Right. And you were to do that. And then, and then, and this is the key one, you were to then put it on your network which doesn't have any type of premium tier. And you're just like, listen, you can wake up at five o'clock in the morning to watch this guy. Let's just say that that guy was going to be in Australia hanging out and he had two words for you, which was huge check. Like, let's just say that's what happened. I could see in theory, in theory, again, this is all in theory, all of it, how that might hurt the long-term prospects for your business, especially if let's say, let's say the one of the few times in the history of your industry, you headlined your biggest show was with this guy in his retirement match. Like you would probably, again, if any of this stupid, crazy shit were to happen, have a lot of trouble later on making anyone believe any of the shit you were selling in terms of someone fighting a retirement match and you couldn't like say build a pay-per-view around it or an entire six month storyline or an entire four year storyline. You couldn't do that anymore because you had already sold out that idea, not in a way that you had to, but in a way that you chose to, to think, uh, to show everybody how cool you were. Yeah. No, you know, it's funny. I was talking to uh, wrestling estate editor, John Corrigan on uh, Twitter earlier this week and he was saying like, oh man, I really wish that like Sean was paired with someone young and like giving him the rub and stuff. And I was like, yeah, like in a perfect world where they've been building this in a meaningful way, like towards WrestleMania, I totally agree with you. But like, it's a one-off house show. So therefore you just build the super card. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, yeah, it, it is. Okay, so this was like a really, I was really excited about this episode and now I'm kind of depressed. Like this was really, uh, usually we have, we come in with an idea of what we're going to talk about and, you know, we get to, we agree on a lot of stuff, we disagree on some stuff. I've, I'm kind of shook by this conversation. <laughs> so thanks for that, Dave. That was, that was fun. I'm glad we got to spend 45 minutes doing that. Thank you. I appreciate it. Oh yeah. Just, just consider me your uh, friendly neighborhood red pill. <laughs> um, so, um. Let's, this is a weird question. Which wrestler, modern wrestler, let's say, post, let's do this, post pipe bomb wrestler, like someone that was in the company past 2011, who do you think would have benefited the most from what is essentially the vaudeville era of wrestling, the territorial era. If you could name one wrestler that you think was good but could have been great or was terrible and could have been made good, do you would you have liked to have seen come up through the territory era? Wow, that's a big question. Everybody? <laughs> uh, like, like I think everybody would be better off for, for having more reps on – on the smaller stage where it's safer to take risks and it's safer to fall on your face. You know what I mean? Like, I just think everybody benefits from that truthfully, but I'll give uh, someone a rare honor and talk about them a couple of, uh, a couple of times in a row. And that's Dean Ambrose, someone who I don't usually <laughs> praise on, but like, I think Dean Ambrose is someone where, you know, the, you could just see him kind of after the, 
shield run ended and, and he stopped being the kind of mouthpiece for Reigns and Rollins. It was like you could you could see him having been so confident as a member of the shield and then really kind of flailing to figure out who Dean Ambrose as an individual was. And like if he had had a territorial experience, he would have already known who Dean Ambrose was. So you could have had him, you know, he would have been plugged into the shield for however long their run was, two years or whatever. Uh, and and by the time that was up, you know, he would have just been super duper ready for that title run. And, and you know, he's one of those people who, uh, you know, you put the title on him and it didn't work out. And somehow it like fucking sent him crashing down like four stories through the floor. You know what I mean? And I, I think that territory experience would have made him more ready and and better equipped to to handle sort of the singles run that he got after the end of the shield yeah that's a great uh choice i i feel like he was both he he has the added advantage of being the kind of person who would have been good in the territorial era you know what i'm saying like he would have been a good character he would have been um a great person to feud with someone like Arn Anderson or something like that, where it's like a guy who's just here to beat the shit out of you versus another guy, a guy who's just here to beat the shit out of you, but hasn't quite figured out exactly how to do it. Like, I think that's Dean Ambrose's problem is the, the part between when you like somebody and when you want to date them, like he's really bad at that part where he doesn't understand that like, I don't want to say he doesn't understand because he knows more about wrestling in his like left pinky than I've ever like known in my entire life. So I'm not really like, he's a multiple time world champion and one of the biggest earners in the industry. So I'm like, he's not an idiot, but I think what he never really learned was like this idea of he doesn't totally understand how to seriously kick somebody's ass or he doesn't know how to do that without garbage wrestling. Like, he is a good wrestler, but, like, he came up through what is the modern equivalent and the the level to which the territorial era and the independent era is there. They couldn't be farther away from each other as far as I'm concerned. Like, they are fundamentally different ideas. One is the gig economy. The other one is, like, becoming a salary man. Like, they're two completely different ideas. And I think he would have had the ability to not had to work different styles in different places to understand what got over with everybody beyond people just liking Dean Ambrose's character. People just like Dean Ambrose. If you go to a show and Dean Ambrose is on it, he's going to get one of the two. He's probably going to get the biggest pop. And if not, it's going to be a top two or three pop. And most of that, not most of that it's split very evenly. And Girls, in my experience, when I've went to shows, chant for him the entire fucking show. He is incredibly over with a specific segment of the audience and the broader audience at the same time, which I think why he feels so much more popular than and good than he actually is. Like, he is one of the most over people in the company, but he's over not because he's a great wrestler, but because there are aspects of, of his personality that are so intriguing that you want to root for him, but he hasn't figured out how to, like, direct that in any way and i think the territorial era a territory would have done that because like the independent era doesn't teach you anything other than like how to work matches that get over as quickly as is humanly possible in the biggest way possible and i and i think that's the difference yeah definitely i mean one person from the territory era who i know a lot of people have compared dean ambrose to uh is dick murdoch 
And, you know, Dick Murdoch was someone who there was some kind of goofy cartoon stuff to him. Like he would do the like Curly from the Three Stooges thing where he would like lay on the mat and spin around in a circle on his elbow. But like that he was a, a master of both having the the silly comedy match, either when that was what the audience wanted to see or when he was pissed off at the promoter and wanted to float them the bird. Uh, but, but, you know, he was also uh, very adept at having that kind of tough match. And once again, being able to cut the funny promo and the tough promo. And, and, and like, I think that, yeah, with the, with, with the correct support system and, and means by which he could get reps, I think Dean Ambrose could, you know, have evolved up to that Dick Murdoch level or, or still could, or might still. Yeah, yeah, we're not coming here to bury Dean Ambrose, but like I I come not. <laughs> I come not to praise Dean Ambrose, but to bury him. Um but I I think he he's one of the the guys that has the biggest jump in terms of what he would have gotten from the territorial era, which is what I was asking. So good job. Uh for me I feel like and this is going to sound weird. I think CM Punk. I think CM Punk would have been such a big star on the in the territorial era cuz he's he's a sincerely great promo in a way that is easy to understand. Um I think he would have been so popular and so over that he would have been because the problem with CM Punk in the WWE, even more so than like a Daniel Bryan, is that he was in the era where you couldn't just watch shit on YouTube, right? And he hit right when you first could. So like people, did, that was to his advantage because he could do the Summer of Punk, right? Uh, again, because he had already done that. But it was also to his disadvantage because like he didn't have this collective body of work where people were like, look at Samoa Joe or look at AJ Styles or look at all of these people who were in what would be considered like that medium time place in TNA. They were actually able to build out a career where people could say, no, unequivocally, these guys can sell out small arenas, but they can sell out arenas. We ha- we can see them build storylines over five weeks and not just come in and do and one admittedly great storyline, the Summer of Punk, used twice. Like, there would be this idea. I think the territorial era would have forced Punk to constantly hit iron against iron and make himself stronger in comparison and I think he would have been popular enough by the time he got to the WWE and not just over with indie marks, to put it bluntly, that it would have actually shifted things when he actually really got over in the in the WWE. It would have shifted. He would have already been at such a level. It would have just pushed him to the actual top of the card and not just the person they kept in the like top of the mid card, basically, even when he was WWE champion. Right, famously. No, I definitely think that also if there was still a territorial system in place, I think that we might still see CM Punk as a professional wrestler and not as a uh, MMA draw, I'll say. Also a host of random shows on Netflix. Oh yeah, yeah. I watched that whole season of Beastmaster. He definitely seemed um, like what I've heard about him. (laughs) There's There's a moment at the end in the finale where the person who wins the competition and all the hosts are like jumping and celebrating together. And in the back corner, you can see CM Punk and Tiki Barber just standing there with their arms folded being like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to jump in that celebration and have anybody step on my foot. That you, you could just tell that there was, 
there's a lot of cutesy interplay, a lot of banter and a lot of kidding between the hosts. And like, he was the guy where, you know, if, if the other hosts, there's a, a particular guy who was uh, one of the hosts for the Italian team who was very uh, active in needling everybody throughout the entire show. But when that guy would mess with punk, Punk would be like, oh, yeah, okay, okay. And then he would do it again. He'd be like, yeah, okay, dude, real funny. And then the guy would do it again, and he'd just be like, will you stop? And not even in, like, a Gorilla Monsoon way, in a, like, legitimately, like, I'm about to just reach out and grab you by the fucking throat. Like, you know what I mean? Like, his 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 not suffering fools gladly was on full display in a show that's by, about, and for fools, including <laughs> Yeah, so I, I definitely think he would have... It would have changed the trajectory of his career before. I don't think much would have changed in terms of what he did in the WWE. Like, I, I don't know if he's going to get the AJ Styles push, but I feel like the territorial era would have turned him into Jake the Snake in a way that he was he was the first CM Punk and not an upgraded version of Jake the Snake. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And like I was saying, I think that after WWE, he would have been someone who who could have gone to another territory. Like you said, gone. I think he is someone who would have been happy to go back to if there was a viable, real, medium-sized room that he felt that he believed in because I, he had a very terrible experience with TNA. And frankly, the time that he was leaving the WWE was not any time to be starting to work there either. But uh, like, if he had felt that there really was another room, even if it was a little smaller, I think he would have been happy to, you know, to take up the permanent residency in Vegas, so to speak. You know what yeah. I mean? Which is really the equivalent of what the master vaudeville performers like Penn and Teller do now. But I, yeah. I, I really could have seen that for him, but but given how hegemonic WWE was, especially at that time, it's it's so different just like five years later or whatever it's been. You know what yeah. I mean? It's crazy. But, but yeah, I, I definitely see why maybe he was as pessimistic about the direction of wrestling as we've been throughout this episode. <laughs> yeah it's good um now that we've ruined wrestling for everybody let's uh get to the- i hate wrestling nick it's been very well documented <laughs> since like the minute i started publishing writing about wrestling on the internet i hate wrestling that's true you've said that for years uh speaking of which do you have anything to plug yeah of course of course uh follow me on twitter at dave writes junk uh specifically i just want to do a uh, continued plug of my conversations with selena de Laurenta. Uh, they're both up on the wrestling estate. The first one, which dropped uh, two weeks ago, uh, it's just to sit down with her, kind of a chat about who she is, where she came from, how she's gotten so great so fast. And then a follow-up piece that uh, dropped a couple of days ago where uh, she spoke with me about her ongoing feuds and uh, business alliances and such. Uh, totally different pieces. One of them is about the person and one of them is about Selena, uh, so to speak. But they, they were both a huge blast to do and, and stuff that I'm really proud of in a way that I I haven't been about any wrestling-related writing I've done in a super long time. Uh, so check those out if you haven't already. Uh, if you go to my Twitter, the links to them should be pinned to my profile. Also, of course, give us your money, uh, patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W. One dollar a month gets you a sexy wizard shout-out. I love to do those. I miss doing them. I'd love to do a new one. Maybe we just need to do a sexy wizard refresher next week just to remind the freeloaders who they're messing with, who's, whose generosity they're really taking advantage of. So uh, check out Patreon as well. Yeah, uh, you can check me out at the Nickster. That's T H E N one C K S T E R. You can check us out at howwrestlingexplains.podbean.com. Uh, you can also rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. 
Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and Pocket Casts, I guess. Yeah, Pocket, I'm, I'm staying with Pocket Casts because I can never remember the other. Now, I think I got all... Oh, yeah. I, I actually, I did a little research, and all joking aside, I know I've made light of Pocket Cast in the, in the past. That's very difficult to say. I've made light of Pocket Cast in the past, but uh, I did actually look it up today. Uh, before we recorded, because I knew this would come up, and it turns out it is the podcasting app that is defaultly installed on Pokédexes. Oh, that's good. Okay, cool. So that's good. That we're so we're big hits in. Um... We're big with the Pokémaniacs. That's good. That's good. <laughs> I couldn't think of the the planet they're from. Are they from a planet? I don't know. Or a country? I don't. I'm... They're from a region. <laughs> I think that the, the games happen in in the X region or the Y region. Not like X and Y, because those are the names of Pokemon games. I'm using them as generic variables. Sorry. I'm Pokemon people. I, I've got much love for the Pokemon people, but I know they're very particular about factual accuracy when it comes to the Pokemon. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're big on their pokes. Um, and also, we are definitely, we recorded audio for the video. I've been working on the uh, the video itself, uh, the graphics and all of that stuff. It will be out, hopefully, um, by the time this video, this episode comes out but if not it's definitely coming out i'm definitely working on it i swear i'm not not working on it right dave <laughs> oh no nick is absolutely working on the video i i have documented evidence including including a recording session that we did together so he's not totally like making this whole video up it, it does or it will at least in the future exist and i do want to briefly say like i I know this kind of like goes without saying, and I, I always like ask myself like, should I say this? Should I not? You know, is it is it too much? Uh, but but if you uh, dig the show, uh, you know, please go ahead and uh, share the show and share that video with people when it does come out. You know, it, we uh, we're always expanding here, always growing, always a few more listeners every week. It's really gratifying to see. Um, but I'd love, like I said in the past, right? If you if you've got those those core friends who you think might really like this, please share it forward. Or if you've got you know a a strong social media following and you're a huge influencer and you want to uh, pour some sugar on us, uh, please let other people know about the work that we're doing. Not just because it's so great, but if you lure other marks here, I can get their money and then I can stop begging for your money. So you should want to, uh, you know, it's like, uh, it's a real uh, triangular sales opportunity. It's an inverted funnel, Nick. It's an inverted funnel. Always be closing. We're right close to election time. Oh, and don't I know it. I heard a political speech on television yesterday. It was very interesting. Was the speaker Republican or Democrat? I think so. <laughs> well, uh, couldn't you tell by what he said? Well, I didn't listen to him. You see, when I vote, I want to have an open mind. Well, I, I wouldn't open it too much. You might catch cold. Well, I'll be careful. What's that now? Uh, did you ever know that my uncle Otis ran for city councilman of San Francisco? Oh. Oh, and what a campaign he put on. Kissed all the babies, huh? Oh, no, why should he? In San Francisco, very few babies are old enough to vote. <laughs> yeah, well, the climate there keeps the babies young. Of course. Some people thought Uncle Otis wouldn't make a good councilman because he liked to drink a little. Oh. So part of his campaign was to prove he had reformed. Now, how did he do that? Well, every night he went around the neighborhood from house to house. From house to house, yeah. And when a man came to the door, he'd make a pledge. Made a pledge, yeah. Yes, he'd say, good evening, friend. This is the last drink I'll ever take, and then he'd take one. So? So, after about 20 or 30 pledges, they carried him home. Now, 
On a stretcher, no doubt. Oh, no, by that time, he was so stiff he didn't need one. He certainly had a happy campaign. Oh, yes. One night, he decided to have a torchlight parade. So we all went to his house and lit torches. Oh? And then we marched around and around, and then he came out on the front porch and made a speech. Was it, was it a good speech? Well, who knows? We didn't hear it. We were too busy helping the firemen put out the fire. But at least he tried. And there was a big public debate, and all the candidates for councilmen got up and made speeches. Oh, they made speeches? Yes, they told uh, what they do for San Francisco to make it a better place to live in. Oh, campaign promises. Yes, and the first one got up and he said, if I'm elected, I promise to clean up the city. Yeah. And the next one said, if I'm elected, I promise to stop all crime. I'll bet Uncle Otis topped uh, Yeah, well, he did. He got up and he said, if I'm elected, I promise to move to Los Angeles. <laughs> But he never got elected. No, but it wasn't his fault. You know how you mark the ballot with an X when you want to vote for somebody? Yeah. Well, all we Allens marked our ballot with an O. Oh, O for Otis. No. But with us marking down O's and the other voters marking down X's, it looked like a big game of tic-tac-toe. Did it that? Yeah. And if we could beat the voters at tic-tac-toe, who cared whether Uncle Otis was elected or not? <laughs> Misinformed, but we have for you to fight your 